Oh, I see. I didn't have that problem because I was born without those. You were born without molars? Yeah, I was born without molars. So I get to keep my wisdom teeth because there's room back there. There's a bunch of room. It's like a holiday back there. Welcome, fellow sleuths, to Meddling Adults, a game show where we grab our best friend who likes to punch people and we go head-to-head to test our wits against the prowess of fictional young detectives for charity. I'm your host, Mike Schubert, and I am notoriously bad at solving children's mysteries, which is why I'm safely behind the judges' table letting others duke it out instead. Our contestants for this first episode of season two, the debut, the debut two? I don't know. <laughs> it's Robin and Bayana, the co-hosts of Wizard Team for Black Girls Create. Ladies, how's it going? We're hanging in there. Hanging in there. Yeah. I really have to change me asking how's it going to like... How's your day compared you know, to the rest of the week? Still, I mean, 2020 living out here. Yeah. So we're still here. <laughs> but here today, we are going to be solving children's mysteries from Encyclopedia Brown. Now, for season two of Meddling Adults, we're switching things up a little bit in that I am going to let you, the guests, talk a little bit about your charity so that the people can understand who you're playing for, why you are playing for them. So I'll turn it to you, Robin. What charity are you playing for and why? I'm going to play for Hopalong Animal Rescue because animals, dogs specifically, are better than us and <laughs> deserve all of the good things. So Hopalong Animal Rescue is the largest all-foster animal rescue group in the Bay Area. Um, they have 620 foster homes, 580 volunteers, 36,000 shelter animals that they rescue before they are euthanized. And so because it's also a rescue, like foster group, all of the animals that they rescue go to foster homes. So that is a lot of logistics, a lot of support, food, crates, things like that. And I want them to get support. That is awesome. That's fantastic. Bayana, who are you playing for and why? I am playing for People's Breakfast Oakland, um, which is a grassroots organization that provides food, clothing, hygiene packs for homeless folks in Oakland. They also, I think, recently just did like a COVID testing like thing for folks and I chose them because I'm an Oakland native and the rate of homelessness has been like ridiculous um, in the last I'm like, I'm probably, yeah, like five to 10 years and they're doing really important work. That's fantastic. Those are both great causes. We will put links to their websites in the episode description. So listeners, if you want to check that out, go for it. But with that taken care of, I say we put the pedal to the metal and learn how the game works and then get into the mysteries. So I will be recapping four quick mysteries from the esteemed children's novel series Encyclopedia Brown. Neither of you have read these ahead of time. I will recap them and then I will ask you for your guesses of who did it and I will be awarding points for correct guesses, and I'll also be giving out bonus points for things such as the Misery Loves Company bonus point, where if your incorrect guess matches my incorrect guess, I'll give you a bonus point. Or for anything else I see fit, you throw a good jab at each other, you say something particularly funny, you give a particularly bonkers guess. I really enjoy pitting people against each other that have some sort of relationship, and the fact that you two are co-hosts of a podcast and co-workers and family <laughs> is just, I, I'm feeling some <laughs> some blood. <laughs> this is like Set the juiciest up. possible <laughs> combination. <laughs> I also think that I should get a bonus point because it's like home field advantage for Brianna. She's like sitting at her desk with her writing utensils and her post-its <laughs> and apparently we're taking notes and I thought we were just going to be like You don't have to take notes. I'm taking If you're taking notes, I'm taking notes. <laughs> I'm just saying I thought that we were doing this like 
on the fly, and you, I mean, you this came. is on the fly for me. All right, but I, I still, <laughs> you know, home field advantage and whatnot. <laughs> Speaking of a home field advantage, do either of you have experience with Encyclopedia Brown specifically or any other mystery series, mystery novels, etc.? Not Encyclopedia Brown. I was really into Scooby Doo. My sister, she had a moment where she was like watching all of these like she's eight. Okay, she's okay. Eight. She's watching all of these. Sorry, I had to. Yeah, um, she was watching. My thirty-four-year-old sister. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but she had like a full like Scooby Doo like thing that she was doing. Spiral. And I mean, I don't really know what they're doing now. I think they had like a movie in which like Bobby Flay and like a bunch of like folks from like the Food Network were characters, Whoa. which was apparently like Fred and Bobby Flay are, are related. <laughs> JC uh, <laughs> Chazé from NSYNC was on and she ran into my room like she was giving me the worst news in the world because she knows that I've been in a long-term relationship with JC Chazé since I was 11, mm, maybe younger. Mm-hmm. But she ran into my room and she's like, Robin, JC was on Scooby-Doo and he was the bad guy. <laughs> no! <laughs> I gotta find that episode. Yeah. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> Serves him right for not marrying me. We've just been dating since I was 11. Exactly. Where's the ring, <laughs> JC? <laughs> Please try to save me. Um, <laughs> yeah, for me, my mysteries were more. I I remember reading like Nancy Drew. I remember reading all of the Boxcar Children. Does Harriet the Spy count as a mystery? Yeah, I think so. She was definitely a meddling case <laughs> for sure. I watched that movie so much that like for a time period of my life, I only ate tomato sandwiches, and my mom and dad were like. I don't know, man. <laughs> I was like, I want a tomato <laughs> sandwich. That's what I want. But also, I have ADD, and I can't remember what I did yesterday. So none of those things have really stuck in my head. Okay, like, okay. I know that I read them, but I don't know nothing about them. All right. Well, we'll <laughs> see if it can help you out as we go into these Encyclopedia Brown Mysteries, the first of which is called The Case of the Two-Timer. So Encyclopedia Brown and his junior assistant detective. He's a boy? Oh, yeah, Encyclopedia Brown's a boy. He's a fifth grader. He's 11 years old. I thought her name was Encyclopedia. And Encyclopedia is definitely a woman of feminine name. Is his name not Encyclopedia? His legal name is Leroy Brown, and his nickname is Encyclopedia. His nickname is Encyclopedia because he reads a lot of books, and he's a big old nerd. So the kids call him Encyclopedia, which I think is an incredible nickname. Yeah, I'm not mad at that. Not mad at it at all. I thought, Mm -mm. just in my head, when you say Encyclopedia Brown, in my head comes up this, like, sassy little black girl (laughs) named Encyclopedia. 2020 (laughs) reboot. Let's go. (laughs) Okay. He's He's a boy. All right. Cool. He's a boy. So Encyclopedia Brown and his partner, Sally, are walking in downtown Idaville because half an hour earlier, they got a call from a kid in town named Lefty Dobbs, and he said to meet them in front of City Hall right away. When he called them, he didn't explain what was wrong, and Sally is confused by this, but Encyclopedia says maybe he's in a situation where he can't really talk safely over the phone, so they rush over because they think Lefty might be in danger. So... When they approach Lefty, he is standing outside of City Hall, and once he sees the two detectives, he doesn't wave, but instead he takes off his wristwatch, and then he has the watch in his right hand, and then he starts adjusting the knob, like he's changing the time on the watch, with his left hand. While he's doing this, he's checking the big clock. There's a big clock tower in the middle of the plaza of City Hall, and the clock reads 2.55 p.m. So Encyclopedia Brown asks Lefty if he's okay, 
and Lefty really quickly shushes him, and then he whispers in Encyclopedia Brown's ear, stick out your palm, I want to hire you for a case. So the classic Encyclopedia Brown thing is that he charges 25 cents for a case, so Encyclopedia Brown sticks out his palm, Lefty puts a quarter in his hand, and then, whispering, continues and says, this case is extra difficult, so I'll give you a higher fee, and then gives him five whole dollars. Now this is 1965 five whole dollars. So that is quite a bit. Lefty's got my bank. Okay. <laughs> Balling in his bags. I'm going to very quickly use my favorite website, which is the United States Bureau of Labor and Statistics, to see what the inflation is. That $5 bill in 1965 is about $41.13 in today's money. Uh-oh. So, How old is Lefty? They don't say his specific age, but they're usually between fifth and seventh grade. Mm. So he's, you know, 12-year-old kid, maybe, and he's got 40 bucks. Like, I didn't have 40 bucks when I was 12. That's some tooth money. Mm. My sister, who is not eight, when she was around (laughs) that age, she used to, like, they would be loose. She'd take them out, and then she'd tell everybody that she lost a tooth. She had a racket She'd get, like, $5 from everyone, and then my stepdad would give her $20. Whoa. So maybe that's what's going on. That is very smart. Maybe that's what he's doing, yeah. She was a scammer for sure. Yeah. (laughs) I think it might be, like, a paper route, or maybe his parents got money. He just rolled it in dough. I don't know. That's true. Maybe he's got a job. I got my first job when I was 12. I was a baseball umpire, which was fun. I got yelled at by way too angry dads. It was fun. (laughs) Dad's trying to live vicariously through, through their children. children. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> former basketball referee over here. I oh, gosh. I'm so sorry that y'all just want to pretend like caring doesn't exist, <laughs> but it exists. And it also irks me personally. It's an affront to me, mm-hmm. so I call it. Learn how to dribble. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> true, true. It's important. Kids need to know. So once Lefty hands over this $5 bill to Encyclopedia Brown and he takes it, Bugs Meany, the town bully, comes storming out of a nearby dress shop and screams, there, you saw it yourself, officer. And Officer Hall, one of the town policemen, is right behind him. Oh, so he's a snitch. Yeah, Bugs Meany is constantly trying to do things and pull shenanigans to get Encyclopedia Brown caught because all Bugs Meany tries to do around town is scam children out of money, and Encyclopedia Brown always stops him from doing so. So he has now become Bugs Meany's sworn enemy. So now in addition to scamming children out of money, Bugs Meany now also tries to frame Encyclopedia Brown for crimes, and here is one of those framing attempts. I also want to make it known that Bionic gave me a faulty pen. Oh! Yeah. Ooh! That's not even true. Very mischievous! Can you see how much ink is in this pen? Well, it is. <laughs> Stenographer, let the record show there's lots of ink in the pen. <laughs> it's not working, though, so... Okay, there will be a fifth mystery in this episode. It is the case of the faulty pen. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bugs Meany claims that Encyclopedia Brown and Sally have been running a racket for weeks, and this racket is that people will go into the plaza of City Hall, use the clock tower to set their watches, and when they do so, Encyclopedia Brown will go up to that person and tell them that they owe him a watch-setting fee of 25 cents. Now, I don't know how the 60s works, but this seems very strange. But Lefty ends up being in on the scheme because he backs up this phony story and he tells the officer that Encyclopedia Brown walked up to him, said he owed him 25 cents because he owns the clock in... Town Hall. Wait, what? Wait, yeah. Lefty owns the clock or Encyclopedia, <laughs> no, Encyclopedia owns, the clock. owns the clock? Why am I helping you? Okay. He's 10? <laughs> He's 11. He's 11? <laughs> what? I don't know how inheritance works, but 
I don't think he owns the clock. But what they are telling this police officer is that Encyclopedia Brown is charging people 25 cents each to use the clock, which he owns in the middle of town square, in order to correctly set their watches. That is what they are accusing him of doing. Okay. Because if that's the case, I would literally just be like, nah, kid, get on my face and like set my watch and leave. So like, what is the cop going to do? Exactly. Exactly. So Lefty continues. He says, I paid Encyclopedia a quarter for setting my watch. Then he sold me the collection rights for $5. He said I could make $10 a week easily by collecting 25 cents from everyone who sets their watch using the clock. These kids are scammers. (laughs) Sally, of course, is absolutely livid, and she is shocked that the officer is even entertaining the idea of believing what Bugs and Lefty are saying. And the officer, who is clearly very bad at their job, we've learned over the course of this series that the police chief and the entire department in Idaville, Florida, is just not up to... Oh, we're in Florida! Yeah, we're in Florida. Yeah, okay, yeah, sorry, I should have said that right at the top. We're in Florida. All right. (laughs) So, the officer is torn. He says that it's a serious accusation, though, but he couldn't hear what was being said since they were inside this dress shop, but he saw everything that transpired, he saw the money change hands, and while it was happening, Bugs was explaining to the officer what was going down, and he says that everything that happened matched with what Bugs told him would happen. And Encyclopedia Brown interjects, he says, I'm sure Bugs Meany did a very good job telling the story, except for, and then the book asks you, how does Encyclopedia Brown know something is up? So I turn to the two of you. How does Encyclopedia Brown know that Lefty and slash or Bugs Meany's story is false? Other than the fact that he didn't do it? Yeah, other than (laughs) the fact... (laughs) That I don't own the clock. I'm 11. I'm 11 and I only charge 25 cents per case. I need to seriously up my rate if I'm going to buy a clock tower. Yeah, like (laughs) what? Oh, oh, oh. Lefty calls Encyclopedia to come meet him. If Encyclopedia Brown was really running this like clock setting fee thing, he would just be there capturing money from everyone who is setting their watch, but he only does it with Lefty. Okay. There's no phone records in the 30s though, right? Do they like trace... I don't know. I was just thinking there's no phone <laughs> record. I mean, if there were phone records, he could run them. Yeah, I'm assuming he just used a payphone right. in town. Okay, that's a solid guess. Bayana, how about you? So he walks up and he sees Lefty just like fiddling with the watch, right? He takes it off. Yeah, so once they make eye contact, Lefty takes off his watch, grabs it in his right hand, and then starts spinning the little knob with his left hand. Yeah, I guess other than that, it's just weird. Okay. Can I guess again? <laughs> sure. Is it that his clock watch knob is not left-handed? Ooh, okay, all right. Uh, so he's pretending to do the knob? Yeah, yeah, okay. Oh. So here's what I will say. Robin, you are correct. Hey! That is the situation. <laughs> if you have a standard wristwatch, the knob is on the right. So if he took it off and he's holding it with his right hand and twisting it with his left, that means his watch is upside down. So there's no believable way that he was actually genuinely twisting and setting his watch. It was clearly an intentional decision by him to just look like he was doing so when Encyclopedia Brown showed up. Can I also Word. just point that out is, the mean, right supremacy in this? Because as a left-handed person... <laughs> See, and I was going to say, assume, when is the last time I right held a watch? <laughs> <laughs> That's why when you were asking about it, and I went, I went, back, I went back to my notes. Oh. See, like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So at the end of this first round, Robin has a three to zero lead wow. as we get into our second case. 
the case of the false teeth. So it's funny that you mentioned teeth money because this is literally a case about teeth money, which is a common theme throughout Encyclopedia Brown. Teeth come up more often than you would think and certainly more than you would hope. (laughs) So it's a Sunday afternoon and Encyclopedia Brown and Sally have gone to the beach and they brought a football with them to throw around. But the narrator says that they should have taken a kite because a strong wind was sweeping in from the ocean, and every time they threw the football, it would blow their tosses into palm trees or to other people on the beach. So eventually, Sally gets tired of people giving them dirty looks Mm -hmm. from the football hitting innocent people at the beach. So she says, let's stop doing this. Why don't we just build something in the sand? And Encyclopedia Brown says, okay, we can build an atom smasher. So they do. This is also an Encyclopedia Brown theme is that if he's reading a book, it's a bananas way too smart for a fifth grader book. And similarly, they're going to make an atom smasher from the sand. I had to Google if this was like a thing. But no, they're just like making an atom smasher device that you would find in a high-tech lab out of sand. Is this man Tony Stark? Like, what? Sounds like it. (laughs) Pretty much. Okay. Wait, is it a working atom smasher? It's not just a likeness? I don't know. It's not not functional. It is a model (laughs) sand atom smasher. (laughs) You know. I don't know. So, just as they are about done with their atom smasher, a kid named Freddy Zacharias comes through and and just walks right through the atom smasher, destroying it. He profusely apologizes. He says he wasn't looking where he was going. And it's like, Peter Brown isn't that upset by it. He says, you're just lucky we didn't build a hole. And Freddie says, I am. If I had fallen in, I would have been bitten all over. And then Encyclopedia Brown says, what did you say? (laughs) Which is the correct response to that reply. Freddie explains that he is a beachcomber, but specifically the thing that he looks for on the beach are false teeth like dentures that have washed ashore. So this is very Florida right now. Ew. Wow. Oh my God. <laughs> what a hobby. So for, Freddie explains that apparently people lose their dentures on boats, on cruise ships, if they're just in the ocean, on the beach, etc. And the teeth will wash ashore and he will collect them and then people put ads in the paper to get them back and offer monetary rewards for it Uh. and he's taken people up on this and he's made so much money from this that just this summer alone he bought a new bike (laughs) what yeah it's terrifying it's awful okay no what why would these still work why would you still put them in your mouth florida's gonna florida i don't know okay Oh, my goodness. I think the reason why this is set in Florida is because it answers a lot of questions that you have. Okay. Because it's Florida. Yeah. Wow. Jason okay. Mendoza would do something like this. <laughs> <laughs> I see it. <laughs> so Freddie apologizes again for destroying their Atom Smasher. He calls it their sand thing, which I think is pretty accurate. And he heads on down the beach in search of teeth, I can only assume. So the wind is still blowing pretty hard coming in from the ocean. So Sally and Encyclopedia say, okay, let's just go swimming. So they go in, they go swimming, and when they come back from swimming, Freddie comes back, he runs up to them, and he says that some kids stole his teeth. Oh, Not his actual teeth, the teeth he's been collecting. So Encyclopedia Brown asks who. Freddie says that two tigers, tigers are Bugs Meanies, gang of ruffians and hooligans about town. The two tigers are named Duke and Rocky. And Freddie is about to bust into tears. He's so upset. So Sally says, those big goons, when I catch them, they'll need false teeth themselves. <laughs> Sally about this life. Sally always resorts to violence, which I think is, you know, I mean, she's ready fair. to go at all times. <laughs> 
keeps that thing on she her. She keeps that, right. She's ready. <laughs> <laughs> and that thing is the name for her left fist mm-hmm. and her right fist. That thing. <laughs> so they go down the beach, and Freddie relates what happened while they are approaching Duke and Rocky. So Duke had snatched the jar out of Freddie's hands while he walked past them, and when they saw that was inside, they laughed about a boy collecting teeth. But Duke then took some of the dentures out, and in what I think is an incredible move, started doing like a flamenca dance and did little uh, castanets with the teeth. It's gross, but also incredible bullying. Yeah, like what? (laughs) But... He got too big for his britches. Freddie says that while he was clicking the teeth around, it got too close and he bit himself <laughs> in the ear with the teeth he was using as a castanet. Okay. Oh my. So this made him very upset. He kicked over the jar in frustration and the newspaper ads flew out. Rocky caught one of them, and he read to Duke that these people were asking for money, so instead they decide to steal the teeth from Freddy, they told him to beat it, and then their plan is to go sell the teeth back to the old people that lost them. I am upset that you would spend money to put a news, an ad in the newspaper, which in the 60s was like the way to do it, sure, but mm-hmm. costly. You spend money to put an ad in the newspaper for teeth that you lost. That you're going to then pay money to retrieve when you could just get new teeth. <laughs> buy <laughs> your own just, new teeth. You could buy a house for $100. Like they're walking around <laughs> with no teeth. Hold up. They're walking around with no teeth in hopes that somebody will find their teeth. That they lost, that in, they the lost ocean. in the ocean. <laughs> so the kids see Duke sitting under a palm tree. They go up and confront him. Encyclopedia Brown first asks, where's Rocky? And Duke says Rocky got sunburnt and went home. Sally accuses Duke of stealing the teeth. And Duke says, after all I did for Freddy, he accuses me of stealing? And Encyclopedia Brown challenges him, saying, what have you done for him? And Duke says, Freddy was walking past me with a jar under his arm. Suddenly he tripped, and a couple of newspaper clippings fell out and some false teeth. He says that he went into the water to go retrieve them. Sally asks, well, what happened to your ear then? How do you explain the bitten ear? And he says that while he was going into the water to retrieve the newspaper clippings that flew into the air into the ocean, he said that he fell into the water, and while he was underwater, he got bit on the ear by a crab. Encyclopedia Brown immediately knows that this story is a bunch of hogwash. So I turn to the two of you. How? Did he know? I will ask Bayana if you want to go first, since Robin went first last time. Ha! Huh. It's because the wind was blowing from the ocean, so if the papers mm. fell, they wouldn't go into the ocean. They would go further up the beach. Okay. Robin, do you have a guess? Teeth marks and crab marks are different. Ah! <laughs> That's true. <laughs> okay. That is a very astute observation, but I will say Bayana is correct. It's the direction of the wind. The book twice mentions that the wind is coming in from the ocean. But I, too, am correct. <laughs> yes. What you said is not wrong, but it wasn't the key evidence that Encyclopedia Brown used to deduce that Duke was lying. Okay, the next, one, story the next one can't be this gross. Like, that was... <laughs> That was disturbing. The following two mysteries are not gross. Okay. So we now go into halftime. It is tied at three to three. But now let's take a little break to hear a word from our sponsors who help us donate more money to charity. Yay! Woohoo! 
Today's episode of Meddling Adults is brought to you by the Meddling Adults Patreon. So we are opening up the opportunity for episodes of Meddling Adults to be sponsored and have sponsorships, and we would take all of that money and put it towards the expenses. That way, more of the Patreon money can go to charity and less to covering expenses. Now, we don't have a sponsor for this episode, but I wanted to use this ad space to let you all know that that is a possibility going forward and just be upfront about what we will be doing with sponsorship funds. But in the meantime, you can support the show, and by that I mean help us give money to charity if you go to patreon.com slash meddlingadults. There's some bonus clips there, but for the most part, we're just taking those funds and giving them to the winning charities and also covering expenses like hosting the podcast, hiring editors, etc. So all of your support means so much. And we raised a lot of money last season. Let's raise even more this season and you can help contribute to that total at patreon.com slash meddlingadults. Okay, so we are back. We're ready to go into the third mystery. The score is tied three to three. I love it. We have our third case, which is the case of the dog paddle derby. So don't worry, no more teeth, just dogs racing in water. Oh, this is for me. (laughs) (laughs) Puppy power. So, Encyclopedia Brown and Sally were busy all morning doing detective work. It wasn't until noon that they were free and able to ride their bikes over to the rock pit where the Idaville Dog Paddle Derby was being held. One of the things I love most about Idaville is they have all of these bonkers competitions on a regular basis, and this is easily the best one yet. Okay, are we in the summertime? Because when do these kids go to school? It is perpetual. Perpetually the summer of 1965 in these books. Okay. Okay. So Encyclopedia Brown says, if we can hurry, we can see the final. And Sally is upset while they are riding their bikes. She says, a swimming meet in a rock pit, dogs should be allowed to swim in pools. And Encyclopedia Brown clarifies that it's against the health law. That's why they are swimming in the rock pit instead. And Sally says, why? There are more short-haired dogs than short-haired people, which, great point, Sally. And then Encyclopedia Brown, in a great joke, says, maybe dogs don't want to swim in people-polluted pools. Which, that part, yeah. Yeah, dogs, <laughs> do it. Dogs, we're gross. We are. <laughs> I mean, my dog, every time I pick up after her, she's looking like, I left the poop there for a reason. Why are you touching the poop? (laughs) It's poop. Leave it alone. You either leave it there or you eat the remaining food out of it. What are you talking about? (laughs) Goose poop is her favorite delicacy. We don't want to talk about it. Nom, 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 nom. (laughs) (laughs) So at the rock pit, they are met by a kid named Fangs Livright. What? Wait, sorry. Fangs? (laughs) Fangs live right. right. You know, we can't escape teeth as much as we try to in these stories. (laughs) He is described as one of Encyclopedia Brown's friends, so we can trust a man named Fangs. (laughs) So... They see him, and pinned to his shirt is a button that says meat director, but it's not meat like racing meat. It's M-E-A-T director. Uh. So Sally goes, shouldn't that say meat director M-E-E-T? And he says, no, I'm in charge of the meat. The winning dog gets five pounds of hamburger meat, which is super cool. I'm sure the dogs would be very happy about that. Unless it is bad for their stomach. Please check with your vet about dietary restrictions (laughs) for your pup. Sodium content is huge. My sister-in-law's dog once ate about half of a Thanksgiving ham when we were outside of the house. And that was too much sodium. And it had to get its stomach pumped because not good for a dog. Nope. 
Nice. And that is why this meet has a meet director. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the finals are about to start. Encyclopedia Brown watches five dogs all get lined up, and there is a teenage boy who is getting them all into their little starting locations. Encyclopedia Brown first sees him move a cocker spaniel into position, and he has one hand under the dog's jaw as he kind of lines him up at the starting line. Encyclopedia Brown asks Fangs who this kid is, and Fangs says that his name is Horace Cushing, and he is a kid from the north side of town, apparently. He is an official, much like Fangs, and this other guy named, and I'm not kidding, Pudding Head Peabody. (laughs) (laughs) So Pudding Head is the water boy. He is supposed to get water for all the dogs. Fangs is the meat director, and Horace is the one that is setting everybody up on the starting line. When Fangs is talking about Peabody's job as Waterboy, he says that each dog has a one-quart bowl that gets filled to the top with water. So each dog gets a quart of water, and Pudding Head empties the bowls after each race and fills them up with fresh water that he gets from the shed near the rock pit. That seems suspicious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So Encyclopedia Brown, in a great pun, asks, now in this kind of race, it's easy to tell the underdog, <laughs> but who's the favorite, Fangs? <laughs> <laughs> Fangs says that the front runner dog is the dog that Encyclopedia Brown saw the guy moving into the starting line, that Cocker Spaniel's name is Rags. I know nothing about dogs, so I don't know if a Cocker Spaniel is particularly good at swimming, but they say that Rags is good because, quote, not only does he clean his plate, but dries it with his ears, which I guess means he eats a lot? No, Spaniels have very long, floppy ears. That's what they're, like, known for. Uh. I need to know the other dogs here because Spaniels, while they can swim... I'm going to shut up because Bayana doesn't know this. (laughs) (laughs) Don't give her any information. (laughs) (laughs) So right after Fangs makes this explanation, the starter gun goes off and four of the five dogs start jumping out and go swimming. But Rags, the favorite, has rolled over on his side and just doesn't want to swim. He looks to be asleep. So Rags' owner walks over, tries to wake him up. It doesn't work. And the race ends without Rags ever getting into the water to start swimming. So Sally asks Encyclopedia Brown what he thinks happened, and Encyclopedia thinks that someone must have fed him some sort of knockout drops or something that made him fall asleep in order to keep him from winning since he was the clear favorite to win the race. So Encyclopedia Brown turns to Fangs and says, is there somewhere where someone could hide for a few minutes where we wouldn't see this going down? And Fangs says that the only thing he can think of is that shed where Pudding Head goes to fill up the water jug. So Sally asks Fangs if Horace, the guy who was setting up the dogs on the starting line, if he ever went into the shed. And Fangs says yes, because he was trying to smoke cigarettes Uh and have no one see. So clearly Horace is a bad boy. And then Fangs points out that the dog who ended up winning the race belonged to Horace, and the dog that came in second place belonged to Pudding Ed. So this is just extra suspicion in that these two who were officials also have dogs that were clearly good, but maybe one of the two of them wanted to knock out the competition so that their dog could win. So clearly these are our two suspects. So Sally turns to Encyclopedia Brown and says, these are the two suspects. We have to figure out who is guilty. And just after she says this, Pudding Head walks up. And Encyclopedia Brown immediately questions him, asking him if he saw anyone at the shed when he was filling up the water jug. And Pudding Head says, no, while I was filling up my gallon jug, I only saw Horace, who was smoking. 
And Encyclopedia Brown says, was he still there when you went back? And Pudding Head says, I didn't have to go back. I filled all the dog's water buckets with the water in my gallon jug in one trip. So Sally thinks that he is innocent because if he had the knockout pills, every single dog would have fallen asleep since all the water came from that same jug. And Encyclopedia Brown says, you mean he'd be innocent if this were Canada, but this is Idaville, USA. So I turn to the two of you. Why does Encyclopedia Brown know that Pudding Head is guilty? I will turn to Robin first since Bayana went first last time. What does Canada got to do with the Canada thing? <laughs> Like the pockets or something? Wait, they don't have pockets? I don't know. Okay, so he's just giving them drinking water, right? Yeah, so he has a gallon jug and he has to fill the five water bowls for the dogs from this jug. And he says he did it all in one trip just from the jug he filled with water. Okay, so he could still put the tranquilizer or whatever into the bowl before he fills up the water. It doesn't have to be in the water. It could go in the bowl. What does Canada have to do with anything? I still think Horace did it, but I'm going to say that Pudding had put something in the bowl and then filled it up with water. Okay. How about you, Bayana? Um, He says he only has to take one trip, but it's four quarts to a gallon, not five. So he would have had to go back again, which means he's lying. That is correct. And that is where Canada comes into play because... Canada uses the imperial system. America uses U.S. Mm, units. And an imperial court is different than a U.S. court. So yeah, in America, it's four courts to a gallon, whereas in Canada, it is five courts to the equivalent of a U.S. gallon. So he would have had to make an extra trip. So the fact that he only did four is wrong. So that, yeah, the Canada line also threw me. The only thing I pointed out was that Horace holding the dog's jaw was weird. I thought that was very strange and that was my only guess. So Robin, I am going to give you a bonus point because you briefly said I still think Horace did it, which was basically my guess. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm giving you the Misery Loves Company bonus point because I was like, I don't know what this Canada shit is, but I really feel like the guy who was holding Holding a dog by the jaw did something weird. So the solution does say that the two of them were in on it, Uh. but but the like definitive proof of the reason Encyclopedia Brown knew that he was lying is that it only took one trip. And a little thing that I didn't realize until I reread it is Encyclopedia Brown explicitly asks him, was he still there when you went back without ever having to know it? Mm-hmm. So Encyclopedia Brown's math brain is like, this kid has to go back. Right. So once he gives another answer, he's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> See, this, yeah. I, I was, I was also math. kind of thinking Fangs was in on it too, because if it's something that you're eating, I'm like, if you're the meat director, like, you know, why should you eat? <laughs> but what was great about the solution is that they clarify sometimes they will add to the story and the solution reveals that because Encyclopedia Brown told the race directors what happened they redid the race next week and Rags won yay (laughs) so it's a happy ending hooray he deserves so now we get into our final mystery and I saved this one for last because it's the spookiest one this is the case of the lady ghost I was very excited about this mystery because Encyclopedia Brown mysteries rarely have any element of horror or supernatural elements. I don't like it. (laughs) And this one is a little scary-ish, so I thought it'd be very fun to round out this first episode of season two. So, Otto Beck, a man in town, bursts into the Encyclopedia Brown family home while they are eating dinner, and he is scared stiff. He did not? Nah, he just, like, kicks the door open. (laughs) If your name is Otto Beck, you are not knocking on a door. (laughs) He says that he ran 
to their house all the way from Heartbreak Cove because he saw the Lady Ghost. He says, I saw Jennifer McIntosh, who is the aforementioned Lady Ghost. She was dressed in all white, and the train of her gown dragged along the sand behind her. She was walking slowly, like a bride. So then Encyclopedia Brown and the narrator explain what this local urban legend is. So here is the tale. Jennifer McIntosh had lived in Idaville a hundred years ago. Her lover had been lost at sea the night before their wedding. According to local legend, Jennifer's ghost still walks Idaville's beaches in her long white bridal gown searching for his body. And his teeth, too, I'm assuming, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. If she can find some teeth along the way, that's just an extra bonus because then she can sell it for cleaning. ghost money, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, et cetera. Okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dry cleaning for her for the, white for gown. The, yeah, that she's drying of along course. the sand. Got it. Yeah. So Otto says that he was camping on the beach alone, classic Florida, <laughs> and he had set up his tent on the scrub grass above the sand. And when he had done so, Jennifer appeared while he was cooking dinner. He says that there was someone else on the beach while he was there. He says an hour before he saw this ghost, there was a man walking across the beach carrying a bag, and he was in a hurry and walking with a limp. Now, Encyclopedia Brown's father, who is the chief of police, he perks up when he says a limp because there was a jewelry store robbery earlier in the day in Idaville that is that exact description where the robber was noted to be walking with a limp. So Otto says that he didn't see Jennifer's face and he couldn't hear anything because the ocean was very loud, the wind was howling, it was a very windy, blustery evening. And he says that the wind was so wild that her veil was flying all over the place while she walked. So it's pretty interesting that a ghost would still follow physics? Yeah. <laughs> Unless it's also, maybe she also has, like, spooky wind. Like in Scooby-Doo, when they'd, like, you know, they're flying and then their hair is blowing the wind. Or, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, I first thought of, like, Beyonce, when she's, like, standing the thing and hair is just, like, flowing. Or, like, Katie Bell, when she gets possessed in Harry Potter and her hair's all over the place. Yeah, and it's, like, all over the place. I just feel like ghosts, if they're deciding that they're gonna haunt a place, I think maybe go for the part lava. of their budget is, like, you have to have, like, a wind machine because of the drama. <laughs> I want to look like I'm on the cover of Vogue magazine and you're pointing a fan at <laughs> yeah, my face and at all also, times. Yeah, and also, like, the lighting, like, all that stuff is, mm -hmm. the aesthetics are important. Get my good side. Yeah. For the vibe. You need it for the vibe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Encyclopedia Brown and his dad head over with Otto to the dock to try to see what's up. So they're looking for prints, and they just find a completely smooth path on the beach, so they know that the prints were intentionally covered up. Now, Chief Brown says that Barney Slade and his wife live in a shack about two miles on the other side of the beach. And he says that Barney has had a limp ever since he took a nasty fall last year. So Chief Brown says that Barney could be a suspect, saying that Barney might have stolen a car and driven out here after the robbery, and then he would leave the car by the old dock, hoping that the police would think that maybe he got away by boat instead of just walking to his house in town where he robbed a jewelry store. Why did they not check that first? Like, they didn't go... Because the Idaville Police Department is terribly run. My goodness. Otto says that this theory doesn't make sense because there's no car except for Chief Brown's car, which they drove to the dock. And he also says, I don't think that he would dare chance smoothing out the sand. Someone else might have seen him covering the tracks. See, Otto's a better police officer already. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right. So Chief Brown says maybe he covered the footprints and then hid the getaway car, but still, I agree, it doesn't add up. 
And Otto says, oh no, and I'm still stuck with the ghost of Jennifer McIntosh. No one will ever believe me. But Encyclopedia Brown says, wrong. I believe you, and he knows what's up. So I turn to the two of you. How does Encyclopedia Brown know what's up? Is it because the train was dragging along the sand, so maybe she covered it up, like with her dress? Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe? okay. Do you have a guess, Robin? That was my guess. Oh, okay. Um, it's okay if that's your guess. I believe you. We go by the honor system here at Meddling Adults. The way that she was like giving me the stink eye, she definitely <laughs> had the same as me. Stenographer, let the record show, the stink eye certainly was given. <laughs> well, that is totally fine. You both are correct. That is what it is. Because the veil was blowing in the wind, the train also should have been blowing in the wind. So Encyclopedia Brown knows that clearly this was an intentional thing. So what the solution lets you know is that he put something stiff in the train of the dress. So he was actually wearing his wife's old wedding gown along the beach. So eventually the solution, it says that they go over, they go to his house and they confront him about it and they end up catching him. So yes, no actual ghost, just a man in a dress with a plank of wood at the bottom. This man knows he has a noticeable limp. And he was like, that's fine. They're not going to catch me if I just go home. How large is Idaville anyway? Because if he is the one dude with a limp, why didn't they just be like, oh, Let's just homeboy go- came in here. Oh, sorry. I misspoke. Barney actually had his wife walk along because his wife does not have a limp. Mm. Barney dressed his wife up like Jennifer and put some stuff on her face and hair to make her look more ghost-like and then affixed the heavy board and then he was waiting in the getaway car. So she, without a limp, walked across the sand. My apologies. And then okay. their getaway car took them to their house. So they drove the getaway car. They just parked it in a different location yeah, and then they walked back to their house so that they could try to just act like, no, we've been in our house the whole time. But they got to the house, they confronted them, he ended up confessing, and then they were arrested. Editor's note, take the car to a different town and rob them. Right, (laughs) don't rob the town in which you live. And you're the only person with the limp. Right. And don't rob the town where Encyclopedia Brown lives. He solves crimes all the time. time. So at the end of this round, at the end of the episode, Bayana, you have won this first episode of season two of Meddling Adults with a score of nine to seven, meaning that you have brought home some money (laughs) for the People's Breakfast Oakland. How does it feel to win? You know, I feel like maybe I should go into detective work. (laughs) (laughs) You know, anybody's missing some teeth, like, let me know. Yeah, call up Freddie. You could uh, really go to business with him and just start making a ton of Florida yeah, money. Yeah, we out here. Florida money. <laughs> yes. Sounds ominous. It does. <laughs> the same. So, Robin and Bayana, thank you so much for joining. If people want to see you doing stuff on the internet, hear you doing podcasts, where could people go? So, you can find everything that we do at blackgirlscreate.org, including our podcast, our Harry Potter podcast, Wizard Team. And then we're starting a new series in which we time travel all through the books, essentially, and make up stories about what could happen if things changed at specific points, of which Mike is on one of of our early episodes. Yeah. yeah. I'm very biased, but I think it was very good. It was. Yeah, it was. (laughs) It was. (laughs) Robin and Bayana, thank you so much for joining. Listeners, thanks for listening. And I gotta say, the two of you held your own. You were pretty adept at solving these children's mysteries. I don't think that I should get a point, because, listen, (laughs) teeth marks and crab bite... (laughs) are noticeably different. 
I've given you a bonus point. You still lost nine to eight, but uh, you were great. <laughs> this was a close one. It was back and forth. It was a fun time and you were very solid. And that's why instead of getting meddling kids to solve these crimes, you get a bunch of meddling adults like yourselves. Thanks for listening to this episode of Meddling Adults. Meddling Adults is created, hosted, and produced by me, Mike Schubert. Today's episode was edited by Brandon Grugel. The art is by Ma'ayan Atias and Kelly Schubert. The music is by Bettina Campamanes and Brandon Grugel. And the web design is by me and Kelly Schubert. You can find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Meddling Adults, as well as reddit.com slash r slash Meddling Adults. And we also have our website, meddlingadults.com. To support the show and get access to some bonus clips, you can go to patreon.com slash Meddling Adults. And another way to help the show is simply tell someone about it, whether you reach out to someone directly or leave a rating and review online or just tweet about it or post about it somewhere, all of those truly help. So thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode next Wednesday.